Recorded live from a planet only 2,000 light years from a big black hole, it's Transformation Thursday. I'm Penny Sterling, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are she, her. Our guest this week is Transformation Thursday's general counsel, Jamie Francesca Rodriguez. Uh, Amy, we do not have the budget. Check, we do not have any budget. So how are we going to pay our retainer for a fancy downtown Washington, D.C. lawyer? Well, Penny, I, I PayPal'd her last night a dollar. That's not the way it works, Amy. Uh, in a TV show, like once I saw someone give an attorney a dollar, and that was the retainer. Unfortunately, we don't live in a TV show. Just sending a dollar does not mean we now have a general counsel for the podcast. Is Jamie even aware of this arrangement? Uh, I'm not sure, but we'll find out after the traditional music swell and fade out. Let's talk about change, Amy. Okay, let me see. It looks like I've got three quarters, a nickel, a Canadian loony, and a few British tenors from when I was in London, because I'm an international comedian. No, not that change. Change is in transformation. The topic of Transformation Thursday. Oh, yeah, that. Well, we're doing this podcast to highlight how much things change and how quickly they do it in society today. Everything changes, and change isn't good or bad. It just is. The more we realize that change is just the natural progression of things, the better off we'll be. Now, let's talk about change. Didn't we just do that? No, no, not the last one. The first one. The coins. Money. About how people can give us some of theirs so that we can continue talking about ours. Are you just trying to get people to go to our Patreon page to support this podcast so that we can continue our exploration of what it means to live in a rapidly changing world? Because although this is a labor of love we do have expenses and by going to transformationthursday.com they can help ensure that we can continue to be bringing this fun and insightful commentary on the world today plus get exclusive patrons only content um if i say yes can we get on to our next segment oh god i hope so Okay then, transformationthursday.com. Also, can you break a 20 for me? Sure, I can get that to you in euros. Okay, now you're just showing off. Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. My name is Amy Stevens and my pronouns are she, her. And my name is Penny Sterling and my pronouns are she, her as well. Now joining us on our Zoom call is Jamie Francesca Rodriguez. Jamie is a returning guest as she was our guest way back in episode 26 when we spoke to her about her transition. Tonight, Jamie returns to provide us a legal preview of what we can expect as transgender people from the incoming Biden administration. I like saying that the incoming Biden administration. It has a ring, doesn't it? It does. It has a whole bunch of things. What it doesn't have is Trump. And that's why I like it so much. However, our first legal question for you, Jamie, does Amy randomly sending you $1 constitute a retainer? Well, let me just say the short answer is no, <laughs> but if it. It did, if it did, you would have retained me for approximately one six hundredth of an hour. So you got that going for you. Yay. And we're done with it. And <laughs> we're done. Thank you, Jamie Francesca Rodriguez, for being on our show. Good night, everybody. <laughs> Elvis has left the building, folks. Yeah, but Jamie's still here. So now you're on your free time. So we can talk about whatever we want, including the Biden administration. How does that feel to feel to say to you, Jamie? That 
just sounds wonderful. I love saying the Biden administration. I love saying President-elect Biden, and I cannot wait to go to the inauguration on January 20th. Oh, wow, you're going? That's so cool. Before we get too far into that, let's let's establish your bona fides or bona fides or beanie photos or whatever it's called. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, just like the, the Reader's Digest version of your uh, storied career? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been an attorney for 15 years now. Um, currently, I'm a senior counsel with the law firm of Holland and Knight um, in their Washington, D.C. office. Um, I've been with them almost four years, uh, started in 2017, and I'm primarily a transportation regulatory attorney. I advise on uh, a lot of different transportation matters. Uh, I've been doing a lot of work with autonomous vehicles. Um, previously, I spent six years at the National Transportation Safety Board, so, you know, I, I was involved in accident investigations and kind of any... I don't know, any kind of transportation catastrophe you could imagine. I, um, I probably worked on at some point, plane crashes, train derailments, um, pipeline explosions, bridge, bridge collapses, all of those kind of things. Um, I spent about five years before that doing intellectual property. So that was like patent and trademark matters. And I was also an Air Force Reserve JAG for several years, so I have some experience um, in the Air Force. But more recently, I've been focusing a lot on issues affecting the LGBT community as kind of an additional practice area. Um, I'm doing, you know, presentations and public speaking on trans awareness in the workplace um, and diversity, equity, and inclusion more broadly. You know, basically trying to help companies create more diverse cultures, more inclusive cultures to really help LGBT employees feel supported and empowered and safe to uh, kind of bring them their whole selves to the workplace. That's kind of my my goal with that. Um, some advising on like company policies, training, those kind of things. Um, and along the along the way, I started just getting every every case that would come out in um, any court around the country um, having to do with kind of the LGBT community or that mention the word transgender, I would automatically have it sent to me. So over, I would you say mean the like past- in a professional fashion, they would like, oh, they let's send this to Jamie and have you work on it or just like to review it or- yeah, I called, I called every clerk in the U.S. judicial system and said, hey, if you get a case, send it to me. No, actually, that's not the way I did it. I just... There's, it's with a dollar bill too, right? Yeah, and a dollar bill. Um, no, I, you know, there are legal databases, Westlaw, Lexis, the like, where you can, um, you know, do an alert, kind of like a Google alert on a topic. And so I have an alert set up to, you know, anytime the word transgender appears in a legal case, I get a copy of the case. And um, oh, gotcha. it's, it's been really interesting over the past year, just kind of seeing the number of cases and the kinds of cases that come in. Uh, for an ex can you speak about that, for examples or anything? Yeah, so, you know, it. I would say, so by number, the most cases tend to be um, pro se prisoner complaints. So, and many of them are pretty mundane um, uh, uh, types of types of complaints. Um, Many of them get dismissed, but there is some interesting cases as well, even in that group of cases. 
you know, it's, for example, it's, um, it's a violation of, of the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment to deny someone medical care in prison, you know, necessary medical care. And in the transgender context that covers things like, um, you know, gender confirming healthcare, um, whether it's surgery or um, hormone therapy and the like. So there's kind of a, a grouping of cases that are surrounding that. Um, I just want to press pause here because, I mean, I know what pro se prisoner means, but, you know, there's probably somebody out there who may not. For So for those people and not me at all, could you please explain what that means? Yeah, so pro se just means that someone is um, representing themselves. They don't have an attorney um, representing them. So individuals can file court cases on their own behalf um, and represent themselves in court. Um, and, and so if, if the person does not have an attorney representing them, they're called a pro se plaintiff or could be a pro se defendant, you know, whatever their, their standing in the, in the litigation is. I gotcha. So these are people who are suing trans, trans people who are suing to be treated the way they're supposed to be treated. Right. Yeah. And, and so they, you know, they, in that healthcare context, often, um, you know, they may have been trans when they went into the prison system and, they're being denied hormones, for example, which is causing them to um, detransition somewhat. Um, or they may have transitioned after they got in prison and you know now they're seeking those kinds of treatments. You know, as you know, you've talked to a lot of transgender people. You never know exactly when someone's gonna finally have the light bulb go off in their head and and really start seeking those kind of um um, transition related medical procedures. And, you know, it, the prison population is kind of a subset of the general population. And so some people come into it far along in their transitions and others haven't even really come to grips with it. Okay. So you were talking about how there were some interesting cases involved in this. Most of them are, are fairly prosaic, but uh, some are interesting. Yeah. So, you know, that, that those prisoner cases, that's like I said, when I probably get on average a case a day, maybe some some gotcha. weeks there might be 15 um, and probably a third to a half of those are those inmate um, cases. But the other ones that are interesting are, you know, there's employment law and like Title IX cases. Very, every, most people are familiar with the Bostick case. We can talk about the, more about that later. That was the Supreme Court case that um, that held Title VII of the Civil Rights Act prohibits discrimination against people on the basis of being um, homosexual or transgender. And so then there's been subsequent cases that have either applied that Bostick decision or have extended it to other areas. and. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act covers employment law. So that's, you know, that case specifically prohibited discrimination in terms of employment. So you can't refuse to fire someone or, or excuse me, you can't refuse to hire someone um, and you can't fire someone because of their gay or trans status. Um, Title IX of the Civil Rights Act applies to education. So there are cases that are talking about um, what what universities can do, what kind of facilities they have to provide, 
Um, there are family law cases, housing cases, um, immigration cases, uh, you know, asylum seekers being denied uh, asylum and the like. Um, there's kind of a subset of education and, and those uh, in the sports arena. And, um, you know, there's a case in Connecticut, which we can talk more about, about, um, you know, whether transgender women should be allowed to compete in women's sports. That's a, a contention. And I think it's actually an area where things may change with the Biden administration. So we, we'll talk about that more later too. Good. Yeah, but I, I have, you know, but one of the things you mentioned in there, you mentioned Bostic, but then we also have Obergefeller from a few years ago, which brought, you know, um, marriage equality for everybody in all 50 states. And, you know, and I, I made this big deal last summer, and I think you and I have discussed this in our individual conversations where, you know, that's a, there's, there's, you know, the constitutional review. And then there's also, I think, what is the other term that you guys use in that legal view about the law, like statute review? Um, yeah, sort of the hierarchy is, you know, the Constitution kind of sits at the top of, of the authority of, you know, of, of laws. And so um, that takes the highest precedence, something that's in the Constitution. <clears throat> Excuse me. The next level is really um, federal, um, is statutory law. So it's reviewing okay. of federal laws or state laws. Um, and, you know, whether they... Uh, as long as they're consistent with the constitution, then you can look at whether a particular act violates, you know, a statute. And so a good point about that, Bostick, for example, was an interpretation of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. So it's, it was a, an interpretation of a, of, a, of a statute passed by Congress. It was not a, a constitutional, um, it was not an interpretation of a constitutional provision. So, so that's important to remember. So my, my other question there is, is in the past, the Supreme Court's been very leery of going back and revisiting their decisions and overturning or like and issuing, you know, let's just say a new definition. But lately with Alito and things coming out of Thomas's, you know, um, court viewpoints, whatever, what's ever been in the media about them, it seems like this conservative majority has a bent to go back and revisit Roe v. Wade, Obergefeller, and I would even suggest Bostic is on the line with this as well, especially when we start talking about religious freedoms. Yeah, so really good point. The, the, the kind of the legal term for what you're talking about is stare decisis, which basically, you know, the Latin term, um, it's the principle that the justices don't want to be flip-flopping, if you will, too frequently on what the law means. And so they do respect prior precedent um, unless there is a good reason to revisit it. Um, you know, a good example of that is the old, um, you know, Plessy v. Ferguson was the uh, Supreme Court decision that held that separate but equal was an acceptable means of providing um, um, school children with education. And so it led to... Um, racial segregation of the schools. And then that, you know, was overturned by Brown v. Board of Education, um, which said, no, separate but equal is not actually equal. It's, you know, kind of as history um, showed. So, you know, sometimes the Supreme Court will revisit old mistakes, if you will, and, um, and get it right. 
Um, well, this Supreme Court, though, that's 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 an interesting question. Yeah, yeah. but I, so, but the, but also in Plessy versus versus Ferguson and Board um, Brown versus Board of Education, you know that re, those are expanding rights and opening things up. You know, if they go back on Obergefeller or even Bostic, they're they're shrinking that. So I yeah I I I was uh, I was being a little facetious with getting I know. right. I they, I shouldn't have used that phrase. Um, the and and actually, so that's actually a big concern here. You know, we started talking about Obergefell, you know, recently in declining to review a case, um, Justice Thomas wrote a, wrote a um, kind of a dissenting opinion. The, um, and, he, and he basically called into question the existence of a right to privacy in in the Constitution. And the reason I think that's dangerous and something that we need to watch for is the right to privacy was originally created in a case in 1965 called Griswold v. Connecticut. The statute at issue there was Connecticut's prohibition on the sale of contraceptives. And the Supreme Court held that no, you people have this right to privacy, and that's kind of within the realm of that right um, to make decisions about um, the use of contraceptives. And and that case then went on and was cited in Roe v. Wade as you know. So this right to privacy has a a, a, a judicial tra train that um, includes and is and it's been. The Griswold case has been cited um, by Roe um, in Lawrence v. Texas, which said that you know you that anti-sodomy laws that were only enforced against um, gay people, you know, were, were unconstitutional. Also, um, Obergefell was partly decided on equal protection grounds, but also cited the right to privacy as a as a basis. So. Thomas's challenge or hint that he doesn't believe there's a right to privacy in the Constitution is a pretty sweeping statement because it really um, threatens to overturn a lot of cases that go all the way back to the 60s. And, and I think, I don't know that the rest of the Supreme Court would go as far as Thomas and actually say there's no right to privacy. So, what some of them might do are other things like say, there aren't these specific rights included in the privacy right, or they might say that, and what often happens, what some of the most contentious legal battles are when two rights kind of butt up against each other. And that's what we're starting to see with these religious rights cases. Um, I tend to call them religious-based discrimination cases, because I think that's what they really are. But, you know, the, the advocates of those are claiming their, you know, religious freedoms are being hindered. And so you have, you have the potential for a, um, for the right to privacy to butt up against the right to religious freedom. And given the current makeup of the Supreme Court, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not optimistic about how they come down on those kinds of issues. Yeah, it's not just a Supreme Court too. It's the, you know, the, they've they've been stacked with unqualified reactionaries during this administration. So um, instead of turtles all the way down, it's assholes all the way up. Um, there's just everybody. I mean, there there's an awful lot of people who 
who have been put into judgeships that uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but they're that have been listed as unqualified by like the uh, American Bar Association that are reactionary that uh, that think like Thomas, if you want to call that particular sort of reaction thinking. And, and then and they're and they're all over the place now. It's it was a backlog that they've tried to clear out as fast as they could. First of all, I don't know enough of the lower level federal judges to really talk about individual judges. So I'm not going to do that. Um, absolutely, it is the case that the Trump administration um, has appointed a ton of federal judges. And I mean, that's one of their big claims to success of the Trump administration, um, you know, as they view it. But, you know, that really came out of at, during the end of the Obama administration, the Senate was not allowing Obama to appoint judges. So that's why there was such a big backlog, which then made it easy for Trump to come in and fill them because essentially the same Senate all of a sudden decided it was important to start filling federal judgeships. Yeah, and it, the, the duplicity and the, 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 that, they, that they have shown in all of this is just maddening, especially when you hear thinking about, you know, uh, about the, you know, constitutionally protected right to privacy that's that to me sounds like it would be the exact opposite of what a lot of these libertarian air quotes libertarian based uh conservatives would believe in and yet there they are uh trying to argue that there is no such thing if it if it suits their political uh motives how do yeah. we as trans people i'm sorry i'll shut up you you oh. you no, go right ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to how do we as trans people as, and how do you as a as a lawyer with a vested interest in these things uh, approach stuff like this? How do we how do we prepare for these potential uh, rolling rollbacks of, of freedoms and rights as we go forward? I think there are and, and we're going to get maybe we should kind of get into what the Biden administration is going yeah, to let's do, do that. expect that to do. And, and I, cause I think that's part of this discussion, you know, what can the Biden administration do on its own? What does it need Congress to do? Um, and then, you know, how can the administration's interaction in legal cases change? How is that likely to change? So I think that's part of, part of the discussion as well. Um, so, I mean, if you want, I can start with sort of a quick rundown on what I've been reading as far as the Biden administration's priorities, and then we can focus a little bit on those parts that fo that are really more applicable to the trans community. That's, I like that. That's why I sent you a dollar last night. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I think... You know, it's no secret that Biden has been talking about um, a, a bunch of actions that he's going to take to reverse Trump policies you know, within the first, you know, within the first day and the first weeks and the first hundred days of his administration. So, you know, those kind of cover the whole gamut of what the country is experiencing now from, you know, COVID-19. Um, legislation and back vaccine distribution. Uh, so, you know, he's going to take over um, the, the vaccine. He's starting commissions already on how to handle the uh, pandemic. So that's a big topic. Um, he'll certainly be pushing for legislation to uh, provide additional relief um, in the term of things like extended um, uh, 
benefits for unemployment, you know, that Trump has kind of let languish. Uh, the administration has a whole bunch of things like priorities on racial justice and the Voting Rights Act, um, you know, restoring some of the provisions that were held to be unconstitutional, or at least the effects of those provisions um, in some previous cases. Immigration, there's a big focus on providing pathway to citizenship, um, stopping family separations at the border. Um, Biden's talked about creating a task force to reunite families. So these, you know, hundreds of children that are separated from their families, hopefully that task force will help that. On the environment and foreign policy, there's things like, you know, re-engaging re on the Paris Accord for climate change, um, joining the w rejoining the World Health Organization. Um, so, you know, there's kind of across the spectrum, Biden has plans that um, I think are going to be exciting to watch roll out. Um, some of those he can do by e executive order. Um, things like, you know, creating a COVID uh, a, a group to help um, you know, ad advise him and, and, and the country on how to respond. Those are things he can set up on his own. Um, but, but getting leg legislation like uh, providing, um, extending those benefits, for example, that's going to take Congress to help pass um, laws and, and allocate money to do so. Another policy of, of Biden's is to raise the corporate tax rate. He's talked about raising it from to 28% from like 21%. Um, but that'll take some legislation as well. Um, but let me talk about what are some things specific to the LGBT community and the trans community. I, I think a big one that we will likely see maybe on the very first day of the uh, Biden presidency, kind of likes hearing that, right? Yes. Um, I think one of the first things you might do is is, is going to be to uh, reverse the trans military ban, the the ban on military service by transgender people, um, and he should be able to do that by executive order pretty quickly. I think if you look back at the history of the of first Obama, the Obama administration lifting the ban on military service by transgender people, um, and and the and the Trump administration's reversal of that policy, it's he ha, Biden has the information he needs to make that decision already. He doesn't need to redo the studies. So, just a quick recap: Biden, or I'm sorry, Obama started talking about, and and the administration started talking about lifting the prohibition on transgender people serving um, in May of 2014. Then. Secretary of Defense Hagel announced a review of the policy. Um, Secretary Hagel was replaced by Ash Carter. And then, you know, basically a year later, uh, Ash Carter announced that he was going to, uh, you know, move to end the band. Um, that took a while. Um, and then I think the, the first time Vice President, then Vice President um, Biden spoke about transgender rights, he called transgender rights, the civil rights issue of our time in October of 2015. So, you know, he's been an advocate for, for transgender people, at least since then, and, and, and certainly before then. Um, yeah, and he's already put Sean Kelly on his DOD transition team. 
So she's a retired Air Force pilot who's transgender. So I mean that right there speaks volumes. He's already he's already headed that direction, I think. No, I agree. And I think we're gonna see more trans people in the administration, you know, invisible positions, um, which which is awesome. You know, we've had, you know, some some recent trans people ed, um, elected to, to positions at the state level. I think it's going to be great to see um, some people in, in uh, federal service and, you know, invisible administrative positions. So I'm sorry, back to the history. So kind of May 2014, Obama started talking about it. There was a big RAND study that concluded in, two years later in May of 2016, you know, basically confirming what people thought that admitting, letting trans people serve wasn't going to be a huge cost impact and, you know, wasn't going to have any adverse effects on, on the military. Um, just a quick note, the RAND study said it might cost like at most $4.2 million a year to allow trans people to serve. Well, if you look at the military budget that year was $50.9 billion. So the increased cost, quote, for transgender for permitting trans people to serve in the military was less than a hundredth of a percent. So it's really inconsequential. And how much, how much does the military spend on Viagra is, a, is another question that I'd like to know. Yeah. You know, I've seen that number. I don't know what it is, but it's, I do know that it's far more than it would cost to let transgender people serve. So um, hmm. that, that number gets thrown out as a comparison frequently. Um, and then finally in June, of 2016 is when um, Secretary of Defense Carter lifted the ban. So Obama went through a two-year period of kind of socializing and studying the impacts of allowing trans people to serve um, or continue serving. Because, you know, as you know, when you, there were already transgender people in the military, they were just not openly able to serve. Um, in effect, it was kind of like in the military prior to the don't ask, don't tell policy, where if someone had been either come out or been discovered to have been um, gay, they would have been kicked out of the military. So that was all good news. Of course, things changed when Trump, after he was elected, um, uh, 2017, he issues this tweet saying, you know, he's going to not allow transgender people to serve. A month later, he directs the Department of Defense to implement that policy. So there really was no study um, by the Trump administration, which is kind of consistent with his whole approach to administrative law in general. Um, he just makes the, he has a history of just making decisions that he wants and then bending the regulatory state to, uh, to implement those decisions. So he's lost a lot of challenges in court even up to the Supreme Court level, just because he really has not justified the the, the process that he's done. In some respects, I'm, I'm glad of that because if Trump would have had a more effective administrative law process, he might have implemented even worse or more things. Um, uh, as bad as it was, it could have been worse in, in, another, in other words. So that's one thing I'm not going to miss is the snap decision, bad decision making, uh, just going with the gut thing that Trump did. I'm, I'm going to I'm, I'm not going to miss government by twit, by tweet. Yeah, that's, exactly. Or yeah. twit. I mean, they actually both work in this in this instance. It, it's that's the what twit, 
the twit, twi- the twit tweets. The twit tweets. Yeah, exactly. He's a real twat. No, he's not. Um, so yeah, but I just, I, I, one thing that I'm really looking forward to is like this reason, thoughtful sort of governmental process being brought back in where you don't have, you don't have, we don't have to be quite as reactionary is my is my hope moving forward with the Biden administration. Yeah, no, I agree. I, and I think, you know, kind of back to the trans ban, I think, you know, Trump kind of on the turn of a die. He act, it actually took him longer to implement his ban because there were a bunch of lawsuits challenging it. It took two years until the Supreme Court basically lifted the injunction that some lower courts had issued preventing the military from moving ahead. Um, the good news, President Biden, can I say that again? President Biden um, can do this on his own. He can he can rescind the ban by, by executive order. He will probably go through some process to do it, but um, my hope is that he will do it on day one. Um, it may take a little bit longer. It may it will probably take the military a little longer to to finally implement, you know, by Biden's rescission of of the ban. But um, he doesn't need legislation to get that going. However, we do need legislation to make it permanent, and that could take several forms. So um, there is a bill that would prohibit the military from discharging service members or rejecting recruits solely because of their gender identity. Um, Hasn't been passed, um, but it's been introduced. And so I hope that a bill like that will actually um, make it through Congress during the Biden administration. Um, Or perhaps that bill won't be, that specific bill won't be necessary because we we pass something larger and more comprehensive, um, like the Equality Act. So anyway, military service, I think that's gonna be um, a very visible um, public action by Biden. Um, In one sense, it's symbolic because it is so visible. I mean, the the ability of people to serve in the military really sets a tone for how we're gonna treat people in, in this country. You know, in other countries, transgender people have been serving for years in Canada and Germany and Israel, you know, in other countries, we're, you know, we're just so far behind. And so it's great that we can kind of catch up again. Um, the military is, is, is great, but I'm, I'm not in the military. I, you know, my, my views of, of uh, society with the military i think i i'm i'm always worried about praetorianism already what about the everyday uh trans man or woman on the street what is biden going to be doing for us what about the uh, what about the hhs as amy had has 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 asked about yeah so some of the other areas that i expect um will be addressed early are for example title 9 we talked about title 9 in education in some of the legal cases um under the Obama administration, they had informed schools that there was a prohibition on denying trans children access to bathrooms and other gendered facilities like locker rooms. So I would expect the Biden administration to reissue that kind of uh, um, guidance to schools. You know, if you're getting federal funding, you can't uh, discriminate against transgender kids. Um, and I expect that to be across the board. I think. There's been the Trump administration at 
in almost every department, whether it's been health and human services or housing or labor, has been enabling the discrimination against the transgender or the LGBT community. And that is what is where he has a lot of power because those actions by Trump have really been through the administrative process and making either regulatory determinations that um, to provide government relief or government funds, you a, an organ an entity could uh, discriminate on the basis of let's say religious freedom or something along those lines, and it wasn't going to um, then exclude them from getting government funding. Um, the Biden administration can go back in many ways to what o Obama was saying and and require that if you're going to take federal funds, you are not going to be able to discriminate against the LGBT community. Well, so, the way, yeah, and the way I'm looking at this too is, you know, in, in Trump administration this summer with their HHS, HHS, which is Health and Human Services, also came out and said that if doctors had a religious, sincere religious belief, they could discriminate against somebody based on that to deny them health care. And that specifically targets LGBTQ people, but specifically trans people, especially trans people who, you know, some, you know, a lot of us here have passing privilege at some level. Some of us have had various level of surgeries to help with our passing privilege. But for those brothers and sisters and MBs that we have in our community, that could kill them. And, and I, and so I think, I want, you know, how quick do we think that guidance is going to get rolled back, you know, with that HHS rule? I know it's being being challenged in the courts and right now everything's come down on our side, but with a 6-3 majority, I don't trust the Supreme Court. Yeah, I I think I think it will happen quickly and and here's why. Um many of the much of what Trump did was he had his agencies interpret their regulations to say, you know, we, and, and at, at the Trump administration's Department of Justice issued um, guidance to other federal agencies saying they had to respect the religious freedoms of, you know, the various entities that those other departments regulated. So in housing, um, you know, it could be people who are providing um, housing assistance or, um, you know, sh temporary shelters or those, or those things. Um, and so there wasn't a law passed. Trump didn't have to get a law passed to do that. They just started interpreting things that way. Um, yes, a lot of people have sued them and there's been some success in the courts to, to restrict implementation of those regulations, um, you know, claiming that they, they didn't follow the right regulatory process, but rolling those kind of interpretive guidance, um, it, administrative interpretive guidance back is is not going to be is it shouldn't take too long and in general i don't think there will be a very successful ability to challenge the rollback of some of those provisions except i think in in one area and this is what i see is kind of the biggest fight looming on the horizon is this religious-based discrimination issue that we talked about a little bit earlier um, in, in Bostick. I could go into that a little bit 
more. Would you like me to to do that? You know what? You know what's yeah, maybe a second, but you know what's really striking me? This is like mundane minutia, like the legal workings and interpretations of our government, but this has really day-to-day real life effect on millions of people across the country. And it, it's it, that it's fascinating to me to hear well, you talk and describe this stuff. No, you're right. And I mean, just to give you, a, let me talk a little bit about the breadth of what Trump has done, taking anti-trans and anti-LGBT actions. You know, he did um, the Department of Health and Human Services, for example, canceled a plan that would have prohibited hospitals from discriminating against LGBTQ patients um, excuse me, as a requirement for getting Medicare and Medicaid funds. So now hospitals that do discriminate can still get that kind of funding. Um, a big step has been the part, the Department of Justice inserting itself into legal cases when it really didn't have to. So I think that's another example in Bostick where um, the administration argued before the Supreme Court to, to to say that um, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act did not prohibit discrimination against gay and transgender people. The administration was not a party to those lawsuits. They did not have to insert themselves into that litigation, and they did. And that is another decision. That's another thing that will change with the Biden administration. The government gets to choose when it goes into court you know, unless it's actually sued or it's a party to a lawsuit, but it doesn't have to intervene or seek to intervene in these kinds of cases. And I think we will see DOJ making entirely different decisions than they made before. Um, It'll be nice to have a DOJ that's not the personal law firm of the of the president again. Well, well, true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think it is. As as a lawyer, how fr as a trans as a trans woman and a lawyer, how frustrating has the last couple of years been for you? Uh, like it, 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 hair pullingly frustrating. Like you said, I can't. My, are you like sitting there going, I can't believe they've done that? Is that something you say on a regular basis, or you have said on a regular basis? Yeah, I mean, it's really been atrocious. The kind of decisions that. Um, I think especially Attorney General Barr has made. I, well, let me say this. Some people are evil. If they're, <laughs> e if, if they're evil and they're kind of stupid and incompetent, they're still evil, but they can't, but they stumble around a lot and don't get things done. And I think that might've been kind of the Jeff Sessions uh, model for being <laughs> Attorney General. I'm, I, I'm not saying Sessions is stupid, but he wasn't, particularly effective. Barr, on the other hand, is both evil, but also kind of smart and evil, which is is worse because then he becomes more effective in, in uh, trying to employ the the evil policies that he's that he's seeking to. Um, in, in addition to treating DOJ like the uh, the personal lawyers of of the president, which is another issue. Well, I mean, you live there in D.C. You have to have some contacts at DOJ. I mean, how many, how many tens, hundreds, thousands of attorneys have left this administration, and you know how quickly will the new administration be able to rebuild? 
you know, I was a, a government attorney for six years at the NTSB. I really enjoyed my service in that agency. And a lot of people, even at the attorney levels, which are relatively high, you know, um, ranking government um, civil servants, they still are not political appointees and they don't see their job directly as being political. They're trying to um, implement, you know, policies of, the, of, of different agencies. Of course, it varies from from agency to agency. DOJ, um, you know, the DOJ civil rights attorneys, you know, can be on the forefront of some of these decisions. I know a bunch of DOJ attorneys who handle aviation and admiralty cases. Um, for example, if there's a plane crash and um, and and you know someone who dies, their family sues the FAA's air traffic controllers um, as part of the litigation. Um, these DOJ attorneys get involved in defending the government. That's not a very political argument. It's a kind of pretty typical tort claim against the government. And so those attorneys are, are not as kind of politically motivated as some other attorneys would be. And yeah, I do think the government has lost people who just finally got sick of feeling like they were representing Trump. Um, obviously, there's been some DOJ attorneys high up who who have resigned. Um, yeah. Um, well, this kind of brings up the idea then, too, of, you know, getting into pardons and everything else. I mean, the the president has very, very um, pretty much unlimited for power or to the power to pardon or commute sentences. But that's specific to the federal level, right? Yeah, so yeah, the the president's pardon power granted to him in the Constitution is for um, acts against the United States. And in the Constitution, when it says the United States, it's talking about the federal government. It's pretty, you know, if you were to look through the Constitution, it's pretty clear um, that the, the document pretty consistently uses United States to refer to the U.S. federal government. It uses uh, the other states or just the states to refer to individual states. And so that pardon power is focused on um, federal crimes. So Trump cannot pardon people against um, prosecution for, for state offenses, state criminal offenses. And that even comes up, you know, some people have been talking about whether the president can pardon himself um, I think that's open for debate. I think there are good arguments to why he can't pardon himself, but it would, if he, if he does, you know, it'll, it'll go to the Supreme Court. Um, but let's assume for a moment that he can pardon himself. Even if that's the case, he can only pardon himself for federal crimes. He wouldn't be able to pardon himself for any state, um, state criminal offenses. So, you know, I, I don't know what Trump is thinking, but he's not necessarily going to get himself out of uh, prosecution by, say, the New York Attorney General. I don't think Trump thinks about anything. He just he's he's 100% reactive. So uh, I, it's it's, you know, thinking, I think, is, a, is, a, is something that higher levels of beings do. Uh, I, I'm not sure that applies to our current president. Yeah. Well, yeah. 
That's so, so what's what are the what are the what are the downs? Go ahead, go ahead. You 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 want you had a point there. I was just going to say to kind of go back and focus a little bit on some of the other stuff that the administration, the Trump administration, has done. Um, you know, we talked about it being kind of across the board. So, Health and Human Services has has um, has proposed, rec uh, you know, letting entities discriminate against transgender patients in healthcare. You know, Amy, you, you talked about that. Um, HUD has talked about, you know, gutting its regulations that prohibited discrimination against um, allowing transgender people to stay in homeless shelters. So these kind of policies are the things that Biden can overturn pretty quickly. And I expect he already has people, you know, teams of people for each department coming up with lists of things that he's going to overturn right, you know, right away. Um, yeah. We spent a lot of time talking about the stuff he's going to be undoing, uh, all the all the Trumpian things he's going to be doing. Can you give us a brief overview of what you think he will be doing once, you know, once he erases the last four years as much as he could? Moving forward, what are the things that you would like to see the Trump administration do in the area of rights and abilities for LGBTQ people? I think you meant the Biden administration. Oh my God, I I apologize. Yes, the Biden administration, the up, upcoming Biden administration. What are they going to do once they once they undo? Once they go erase, 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 erase. Where are they going from there? What, what would you like to see them do as a lawyer? So I think there's one of the, the biggest thing I want to see that I would like to see done is is and this will require more than just the administration, this will require Congress is to pass the Equality Act. And let me talk a little bit about why I think that's so important. Um, oh, please do. So the Equality Act, if it, you know, which would prohibit discrimination on the, ba on, because on the basis of being gay or transgender, um, kind of across federal statutes. So it's this broad, guidance, you know, which would be enacted in law, and it would almost be a kind of super statute. And that's a term. So let me let me go back and talk a little bit. And I'm going to go now is, I'm going to go back and talk about this religious based discrimination, also known as religious freedom, you know, argument. Um, and I'm going to go back to Bostick, which we've mentioned a couple times earlier, but just to get in a little more detail. So the Bostick decision earlier um, this year, it was a consolidation of three cases. One was um, Bostick v. Clayton County out of the 11th Circuit, the Northern District of Georgia is where it originated. And Gerald Bostick was a gay man um, who had expressed interest in a gay softball league and was fired because of that. Um, there was another case, Altitude Express v. Starda out of the uh, Second Circuit originated in New York. There, Donald Zarda was a gay man who was a skydiving instructor and was fired. And then um, RG and GR Harris Funeral Homes Incorporated versus the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, EEOC, was a case out of the Sixth, Sixth Circuit, which started in Michigan. And there, um, the plaintiff named Amy Stevens. She um, spelled it wrong, though, on both accounts. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. she's passed away. He has passed away. She didn't really get to see the final result of this case, which is really sad. But Amy Stevens 
was a transgender woman who worked at a funeral home and was fired after she decided to come out. So anyway, um, the Bostick decision consolidated those three cases. And I kind of, I kind of describe this case and some of the um, principles as the good, the bad, and the ugly. And let me, let me tell you what the good was. The ultimate holding in the case was really good. And reading this case actually made me cry. I broke down crying because um, Justice Gorsuch wrote the opinion. And I, when I heard that, when that, when I first heard that he wrote the opinion, my first thought was, oh my God, we lost, right? Um, because, you know, he's a Trump appointee and I thought he was going to be anti-trans, anti-LGBT, but he wrote this. I'm going to just read this quote. He said, in our time, few pieces of federal legislation rank in significance with the Civil Rights Act of 1964. There, in Title VII, Congress outlawed discrimination in the workplace on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. Today, we must decide whether an employer can fire someone simply for being homosexual or transgender. The answer is clear. An employer who fires an individual for being homosexual or transgender fires that person for traits or actions it would not have questioned in members of a different sex. Sex plays a necessary and undisguisable role in the decision, exactly what Title VII forbids. So, you know, I read that start and I was, you know, I, like I said, I, I just started crying. Um, and the good part of that is they looked at the phrase because of sex and interpreted that kind of broadly and and in the plain meaning that, you know, if you make a decision for against, a, if you fire a transgender person, you know, and you would not have fired a cisgender person in the same circumstances, that was because of their sex. Um, likewise, if you fire a gay person, if you fire a man who loves another man, but you wouldn't fire a woman who loves a man, for example, you've, you've taken into account the sexual characteristics of the individuals, and that falls within this because of sex, you know, phrasing. Um, so that was the good, and it, it's, it's definitely a good case. Um, it was also good because it focused on the individuals. People couldn't get away with firing, saying, well, or you couldn't justify the discrimination because we're, you were, um, entities would claim, well, across the board, we don't fire, you know, we don't um, discriminate that much, but you, you know, the, the, you have to actually look at the individual who's been fired and, and what their circumstances are. So that was good too. The bad part of the case though, is Gorsuch hinted at a, an exception for, uh, for, for religious, um, for claims of, of religious belief, um, you know, firings on the basis of some clo closely held religious belief. And so this is what I, what I call the bad part of the, the Bostick decision. I'm going to read a different section. He said, separately, the employers fear that complying with Title VII's requirements in cases like ours may require some employers to violate their religious convictions. We are also deeply concerned with preserving the promise of the free exercise of religion enshrined in our Constitution. 
That guarantee lies at the heart of our pluralistic society. But worries about how Title VII may intersect with religious liberties are nothing new. They even predate the statute's passage. And he says, um, this court has also recognized that the First Amendment can bar the application of employment discrimination laws to claims concerning the employment relationship between a religious institution and its ministers. And then he cites a case. He says, and Congress has gone a step further yet in the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993, that statute prohibits the federal government from substantially burdening a person's exercise of religion unless it demonstrates that doing so both furthers a compelling governmental interest and represents the least restrictive means of furthering that interest. And here's a phrase, because RFRA, RFRA operates as a kind of super statute, displacing the normal operation of other federal laws, it might supersede Title VII's commands in appropriate cases. So mm -hmm. Gorsuch specifically called out that there may be a religious basis to discriminate, but that wasn't at issue in these cases. And in fact, um, Harris Funeral Orms, Homes had argued that at the lower level, um, at the appellate level and, and at the uh, district court level, and they had lost, and they had not they had not argued that before the Supreme Court. So that religious based exemption was not before the Supreme Court in the Bostic um, case. And I think Gorsuch was kind of providing a roadmap for for the future that that um, it, that is coming up. And I, you know, you can see that in some recent cases. There's two of them that come to mind. One is. Uh, Fulton v. City of Philadelphia, which was is a case by um, by a, a Catholic um, organization that is providing adoption services for the city of Philadelphia. It was just argued; they just had an oral argument um, a couple weeks ago, and it's looking like so. Just real quick about that: the city of Philadelphia has. Um, an ordinance, a, a, a city law, that um, basically says you don't, you can't provide adoption services for the city if you discriminate on the basis of, um, uh, you know, homosexual. Um, if you discriminate against homosexuals in in providing those services, and this Catholic adoption agency does not want to provide adoption services to gays and lesbian couples. Um, and so Philadelphia dropped them from their, you know, roster of, of entities that are providing adoption services. And that's the, you know, and then uh, the adoption agency sued the city. So that's, that's what's at issue here. And if you go back, there's kind of a there's a line of cases that say generally applicable laws still apply to you know religious entities as long as it's not f focused on their religion. It's not a kind of religious discrimination. I mean, it's kind of like, look, there's laws against murder. So some church can't claim that. Well, our our religious belief uh, requires us to make sacrifices to our God. Um, and that doesn't get them out of the murder statute, right? That's kind of like the, the, the crazy argument. Yeah, I mean, does that surprise anyone? No, of course not. And, you know, 
obviously I'm going use a using a hyperbolic example there, but I don't know if you are or not. That's well, I I hope not. Um, yeah. I mean, I hope I am actually. Um, so if I don't know, it's it's hard to read the tea leaves at oral argument. You know, judges um, and justices ask questions of both sides. They try not to tip their hand, but you know the pundits, if you will, of that listen to Supreme Court arguments w are predicting that they're going to find <clears throat> against the city of Philadelphia and basically have a impose a religious exception, so that entities, you know, religious entities that are providing adoption services will be able to discriminate. Um, against gays and lesbians trying to adopt kids, which is terrible, you know? Um, yeah, but the flip side of that argument, too, is also that, you know, like, you know, let's say, you know, lack of better thing, you know, Penny and I decide we're going to adopt a child together because, you know, that's what we decide we want to do. Would we go to Catholic charities of any sort I, to, to provide us that service? So, okay, I, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to jump no, in too Go quickly. ahead, jump in. That's, I mean... But we do. Yeah, that's a that's a practical matter. Yes, you can choose to go to a non-religious uh, entity in order to get the services. But if you look across the country, there are going to be places where the only entity providing that service in a reasonable driving distance is a religious entity. And so, if all of a sudden every religious entity in the United States providing um, non-religious services like adoption agency um services can start discriminating it's going to really impact the lgbtq's ability to have to really get the equal citizenship that they deserve so i'm you know you could if you just look at one issue look and not i don't know the numbers of adoption in the united states it's probably um thousands a year yeah i mean they're not not every every person's not adopting children, so it it um it impacts a relatively smaller number of people, but the people that it impacts it it impacts them severely and you know so you have to look at those individuals and see the impact on them um i I call this there's one other case that I want to mention and and it's the one decided just this weekend by the Supreme Court, Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn v Cuomo which was the COVID-19 restriction case. And there, once again, the, um, the justices allowed an exception to a generally applicable rule about, you know, gatherings and the sizes of gatherings. And, and now there's a, a basically a religious exception to those restrictions. Um, and, and, and I call these kind of the bad. Um, but they're not the worst of the cases. There's another group that I'm going to call the ugly. So, you know, we talked about the good and the bad. The ugly, and this is something we I think we need to be on the lookout for. There's a case now that's kind of working its way up. It's currently in Ohio. It's called Meriwether v. Trustees of Shawnee State University um, in the Southern District of Ohio. And in Meriwether, um, Mr. Meriwether is a professor, was a professor at Shawnee State. 
he had a practice of calling his students Mr. or Ms. You know, last name, Mr. Smith, Ms. Jones. Um, what do you think about, you know, kind of in the Socratic method? Um, well, he had a transgender student and he misgendered the student. And afterward, the student came up to him and said, hey, you know, you misgendered me. Um, and, you know, I would appreciate if you call me Ms. Um, I don't remember the student's name, but let's. So what the professor did, instead of respecting her gender identity, he said, well, I don't, you know, I have a religious, um, I disagree with you on religious grounds, um, and so I'm not going to do that. What he started doing was basically calling her just by her last name. So for every other student, it was Mr. or Ms. Um, for this one student, it was, um, I'll use my name, hey, Rodriguez, you know. Um, and so if I'm sitting in the class, you know, Ms. Smith, Mr. Jones, uh, what do you think, Rodriguez? Um, and so that person was singled out uh, because, because of his religious belief. Well, the student complained first to the professor. Um, then the student went to the school, and the school had a policy requiring the treatment of students in accordance with their gender identity. Um, and after the student complained and the school, you know, looked into it and talk, they talked to the professor, he refused to follow their policy, and the school fired him. Um, which I applaud the school. That's what they should have done. What the professor is seeking is an individual religious exemption to say that he doesn't have to tr treat transgender people equally um, because of his own individual belief, even though he's an employee of, of the uh, university. Um, it's kind of, it kind of is, reminds me of the, um, you might remember the case right after Obergefell, which, you know, granted the rights um, for same-sex marriage, there was a county clerk in Kentucky, Kim Davis, who refused to issue um, um, marriage certificates. Ultimately, she was, um, she wasn't actually fired. She was removed, put, you know, kind of put on other duties. She filed a series of, of court cases, ended up losing, and when she went to the Supreme Court, they declined to hear her actions. So, and then Kim Davis was not reelected to her county clerk position in the next election. Um, but the reason I call these the ugly cases, and this is something that the Trump administration has pushed as well, um, or advocated for, they're advocating for an individualized ability to say for any, you know, any employee of a, of a company to say on my own religious grounds, I'm not going to serve some member of the public. And that I think is a really dangerous precedent. So I, you know, I urge people to follow this Meriwether v. Trustees of Shawnee State University case. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that it doesn't actually make it to the Supreme Court, but you know what, there are, there are entities that are pushing religious freedom. I suspect they're gonna step in and back Mr. Merriweather in his cases, and they're gonna try and get that to the Supreme Court. Uh -huh. Yeah, I, I, think, I think you're right. And I think it's, it's, it's a sad statement when you know, organizations make rules and put them in place to advance you know, 
Penny and I have talked about this, corporations, when they can see they can make money off of us as a, as a group within the LGBTQ community, that's when a lot of times acceptance is pushed, and I think we'll continue to see that. So, But I think if we get down to this individual religious freedom stuff, then we're talking like mass chaos. Exactly. Like you, you, you don't know what store shop, wherever you walk into, who can discriminate you based on what basis. So. Right. Hopefully you're going to, you're going to go into one CVS and you're going to be able to get your, um, your spironolactin and your estradiol prescription filled. And then you're going to go on a trip, uh, to some other part of the country and walk into a CVS and they're going to refuse to give you those because they're going to claim a religious exemption, um, to not support transgender people's healthcare. I mean, yeah. that is the level that I am afraid of us reaching. Yep. Well, Jamie, we need to give it a wrap tonight. Um, thank you so much for the preview on what's coming up with the Biden administration, some of the cases that you're watching um, and that we should be paying attention to, working our way through the appellate courts and through the district courts. And hopefully, um, especially that last one you mentioned, they're coming out of Oklahoma. Hopefully that one um, just kind of goes away. But I have a feeling you're right that we will see that one at the Supreme Court. But we'll be back with uh, our wrap on what Penny and I thought of this episode right after the next little break here. We'll be right back. To financially support Transformation Thursday, go to transformationthursday.com and that will bring you to our Patreon page. Once there, click on the Become a Patron button. You can also follow us online on Facebook. You can follow us by searching for Transformation Thursday Podcast. And please join our private Facebook group by searching Transformation Thursday on Facebook. On Twitter and Instagram, you can follow us at TransThursPod. To make sure you stay up to date with all the latest episodes, please subscribe to the Transformation Thursday Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google podcast or wherever you get your podcasts on apple Podcasts, please leave us a five-star rating and a short review it's free and it does help get transformation thursday out to a larger audience finally transformation thursday is copyrighted material all rights reserved 2020 welcome back to transformation thursday i'm penny sterling and my pronouns are she her and I'm Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are she, her as well. Well, that was a fascinating look into the future from Jamie. What do you think, Penny? What did you take away from this? Um, I First off, I think that I would want to have a lawyer like Jamie on my side. She is so prepared, and she is so thoughtful about all of these things. Um, she, she, she laid it out for us, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I think that the ugliness is the thing I'm not going to miss about the Trump administration. And I'm hoping that we are going to be able to find some people who are not going to look for the meanest possible thing going forward with the Biden administration. I'm, I'm very heartened by that. I'm very frightened by the makeup of so many courts right now, like, like Jamie was alleging to, uh, that, you know, our... Are, are looking at some some like what, what she the the phrase she used was um religious um religious discrimination I'm trying to remember exactly what it was that she the way she said well, she's that. still here we can ask her Jane, what did you say religious-based discrimination religious-based discrimination yeah that's what worries me the most and i think that she's right about that and uh, I, I just hope that there, I mean, there are so many things that the Biden administration is going to have to undo and work on. I hope that he can get to this one in uh, in due time. Yeah, and my big takeaway is, you know, it, we, we get into this wonkiness or this mundane minutia of, you know, judges, politics, you know, policy, but these things have 
real dramatic effect on the day-to-day -day lives of millions of Americans across the country, and especially our LGBTQ brothers, sisters, and NBs who are out there, you know, that discrimination can literally kill one of us. And that's what we are really fighting against. And that's what we need. You know, we talk about bending the arc of humanity for justice for everybody. I think that's what I'm looking forward to most with President-elect Biden and his administration coming into existence here on what shortly after noon on January 20th. By the way, Jamie, I will be down on the 19th to go with you to the um to the inauguration so i've just invited myself back down so anyway so there you go yeah the, the thing that i'm looking forward to most right now is um if i look out the window and see that it's raining uh i won't have a president who'll try and gaslight me about that and that's how it's felt <laughs> for the last four years yep so but all that stuff remains to be seen we've had another great episode of transformation thursday we'll see you again next week good night amy Good night, Penny. Good night, Jamie. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody.